When we left Acts chapter 15, remember I titled the last chapter, They Too Have Warts. Remember that. You'll think about that this coming year. They too have warts. And we talked about the fact that uh, here's Peter giving this tremendous oration, defending the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Jerusalem church against the Judaizers. Those who wanted to take the gospel of Jesus and say, before you became a Christian, you first must become a Jew and embrace all of the Jewish traditions. Uh, and really, that would have changed the entire gospel of justification by faith alone, to go back and embrace the uh, old covenant. And Peter gave, came, uh, got up and gave this incredibly impassioned defense. And then we studied how about a year or two later, when Peter traveled to Antioch, in the beginning he was with all the Gentiles and they were eating together and he was not observing any of the, uh, the uh, Jewish laws relating to the differences between Gentiles and Jews. And then his pals, his old Jewish pals from the Jerusalem church came up and visited him. And lo and behold, what happened when his friends came our dear brother Peter, this pillar of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that pillar reverted to his old Jewish ways, left the Gentile brothers, and, and ate only with the Jews. And how Paul called him out on it, called him out on it, chastised him, and said, you're denigrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we said, they too have warts. Why else? Because a couple of verses down the chapter, our brother Paul, after he called out Peter, here's this giant, this giant, uh, who probably is one of the top five people in the history of Western civilization. Brother Paul, who gets into a petty argument with Barnabas over what? Some serious, serious doctrinal issue? No, no, over a 19-year-old teenager John Mark, who walked out on her first missionary trip because probably he was homesick, probably so, and Paul didn't forgive him. Oh, Paul, where is the gospel of love? Where is the love? Well, I don't know where the love is, but he's not coming with us. He's not coming with us. And somebody said to me in the other class, aren't you being unfair to him? He never, he never, he never wavered on doctrine. I am not doing this to criticize these giants. Oh, and behold, these men, are, these are the giants of all giants in terms of their faith. But I'm doing this to demonstrate to you that they are only human. They, too, have warts, just like you have warts and I have warts. Meaning, Jesus knows that. You will fall. You will fall 70 times 7. You will get up and Jesus will understand. In other words, this is part of our Christian walk that we carry around this old flesh, and it makes us do stupid things. Right? I mean, this is it. This is it. And that is why when you read that verse, upon this rock I established my church, the rock is not Peter. The rock is not Paul. There is only one rock, Jesus. Why? Because God would never make his church dependent upon a human being. Because human beings are frail and faulty. There is only one Jesus, one rock, 
one foundation of our faith. So never forget that. Never get confused on that issue. There is one rock. He is that rock. And so we begin Acts chapter 16 with our, our second missionary trip is now Paul and his new partner Silas begin this trip. And I'm wondering, they go back and they, they go to their first two uh, uh, places, Derby and Leicester. And uh, there are churches there now. He's going back to visit churches. And you remember Derby and Leicester from our last trip there. Paul had some wonderful uh, times there. He was uh, stoned to death almost there. Can you imagine? Last time I was there, I was basically killed, stoned. And he goes back because there are Christians there. There's a church there. One thing that I was reading this, I, it caused me to think about, well, what did he do when he came back? And I'm sure the first thing they said, Paul, where's your buddy Barnabas? <laughs> well, you know, just shows you how we, we, we know we get involved in these things and it becomes very difficult for us to get out. I'm sure they asked him, where's, your, where's Barnabas? Where's Barnabas? I doubt that he told them where, what exactly happened. But that's where we're at now. So verse 1. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Now, this is important because under Jewish law, if your mother was a Jew, you were a Jew. Didn't matter what your father was. If your mother was a Jew, you were a Jew. And so, most probably, a disciple named Timothy, meaning there, as I read this, Timothy probably came to the Lord through the evangelism of Paul and Barnabas. Who knows if, in fact, he was there and saw the despicable acts of him being, you know, attempted to be killed by stoning. And all of that, all of that made an impact in him, which is why I say to you, your life speaks volumes about your faith. Your life. And when you're suffering, when you're in sickness, when you have problems, people look to see how you handle them because they know who you are. They know you profess to be a Christian. They know that you go to a church like this. They see you get up early in the morning. They see you go to church. They see you come home after five hours. <laughs> They see you spend, spend about an hour home, an hour and a half, get back in the car and go back to church. They see you go to church Wednesday night. They're watching you. They don't always tell you this, but they're watching you. I know, I grew up in that kind of neighborhood. Remember, I grew up in godless New Jersey. <laughs> but remember, they are watching you. And so... They especially watch you when you now have suffering in your life. There's sickness, financial problems, relational problems. They watch and they look to see how you act. And how you act is your ministry of the gospel. That's it. How you act. How you act when you get a bad decision from the doctor. How you act when your stock portfolio crumbles? How do you act when all these things beset you in the world? What separates you in your conduct from the guy across the street or the lady down the street? 
got to be the love of Jesus Christ. And when this is an important part to drill into us as Christians, how important our ministry is in our walk. And to me, this first verse speaks to my heart about this, about this disciple, Timothy, being in this place, Derby and Lystra. John? Yes. Yes, I think that's true. Yes, so we're, look, we're looking at a young man. In fact, uh, Paul viewed Timothy as a son. In fact, uh, it's, it's amazing about how, how much he loved him. Uh, and he said, if, if, you have, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Romans, Corinthians, all right? I'm doing this for myself. <laughs> Ephesians and Philippians, okay? Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son and as with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Amen. So there's an example of the affection between them. So he came to him as a young man, he mentored him, and he viewed him as he would a son in the faith. So continuing on, verse 2, the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, meaning well of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews, encircled because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Brother John, what is this about? We just left the Jerusalem Council. We just left the issue of this big divide. And the determination was that you did not have to be a Jew to be a Christian. That there was a new covenant, a covenant of justification by faith alone. And now why? Why, brother? Why is he making him get circumcised. Why? Well, because the Jews that he would minister to, that he would oppress the gospel, those Jews would look at him and say, your mother was a Jew. If your mother was a Jew, you're a Jew. Then you're not a good Jew. You're not circumcised. And it would become a stumbling block. A stumbling block. Now, we focus often in our Christian walk on issues we call sins. There's something else, stumbling block. A stumbling block means some issue that you would do that, would, that in some way would interfere with other people coming to the Lord or fully embracing the gospel. And, and I, it's difficult for me to enunciate all the possible ways you could become a stumbling block, but here's a good example. Suppose you, wanted, you had a Jewish friend and you wanted to talk to them about the Lord. You invite them over to your house. Would you serve pork sausages? 
All right? Another thing, you know, you, 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 you have to go, you know, you couldn't go to your normal 9.30 service. You got tied up, but you had to go to the Saturday night service. So you go, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> so you go to the Saturday night service and you go, oh, man, this music is lousy. This is awful. And by the way, let me make sure I tell everybody that's in the first three pews how equally lousy the music is. Now, you think that's helping the gospel of Jesus Christ? You think, do you, or do you think that's becoming a stumbling block? Your attitude, people look at your attitude, they know you're a Christian, they know there are people worshiping, you could see people worshiping. You could see people worshiping, yet you feel it's important for you to articulate publicly your own internal distaste. That becomes a stumbling block. And this goes on and on and on. M much of it is, is cultural issues. You know, you're out with somebody, and you know that, they're, that they have a, a certain predilection about how, how they like, like to, to uh, do certain things or eat certain kinds of food. And you, as a Christian, you know, act in a way that's offensive to them. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you become a stumbling block to somebody else? Your job is to bring people to the cross. Your job is to, isn't, to, isn't to become the professional critic of all these issues and then to make sure you articulate them well. He understood it. As great a theologian as Paul understood that that issue of circumcision, while uh, completely irrelevant, from a doctrinal point of view, would become critical if he was going to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he, he had him circumcised. And so we start this, this mission trip uh, on this particular, in this venture now, where there are now three of them traveling together. And so it says, as they traveled from town to town, in verse 4, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Which decisions are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the Jerusalem Council, the judgment of the Jerusalem Council. They're bringing to the churches the very verdict of the Jerusalem Council that says you're saved by Jesus alone, by faith, justified by faith alone. You do not have to be a Jew. The old law of the old covenant, uh, the law of Moses, has, is not what's going to save you. You are saved solely by the grace of Jesus Christ. You do not have to become a Jew. And the churches were, were thrilled to hear this, and churches grew. And it says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Now, verse 6. Paul and his companions, companions here means Luke, Timothy, and Silas, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is now we're dealing with the western part of Turkey having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching in the province of Asia. What is that, Brother John? Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching to Asia. Does the Holy Spirit stop you sometimes in presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, I can tell you that. Yes. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will not allow you to go certain places that you think are appropriate to go, where you think God wants you to do something, where it's not in God's world and God, not in God's way. And so 
this becomes a very important doctrinal point about how we have to live as Christians. And one of the things that I learned early on in my family, uh, and this is something that I would recommend to you and to your children and to your friends, is that every decision that you make in life, every decision that you make, you pray and you pray this way, Dear Lord, please direct our paths. Please close the doors that need to be closed and open those doors that need to be opened so I know what your will is for me in my life. That's a prayer I made for when I went to school. That's a prayer I made for where I decided to go to college or law school, when I got married, when I bought real estate. And when I didn't make that prayer, let me tell you, every once in a while, through my own boneheaded human ways, I might not have made that prayer, and I made some dumb mistakes that I paid for. But when I made that prayer and I asked God to open the doors, the doors were open. And when they were not supposed to be, the doors were slammed shut. Yes, sister, you have your hand raised? Absolutely. And I can tell you that that's a fact. I can tell you that that's a fact. That sometimes you, wanna, you think you want to talk to somebody about the Lord. And, and you're waiting for an opportunity and you're feeling you can't do it. It's because God has not prepared the ground yet. You don't know why, I don't know why, but the time is not right. Yes, I can, I can tell you that I have personally witnessed that. Personally witnessed that. Uh, and, and, and so, I mean, these are issues that you have to have this sensitivity with in your life. And I had, I had a, a, a dear relative that I was praying with for a couple of years going through a lot of, of, of heartache and I would pray with him almost every week um, and my prayer always was for this uh, man that God would close the doors in his life that had to be closed and open the other one so he know he knew what he would do so after about two years of this prayer one day my cousin said to me John you always pray for me today let me pray rich please pray for me he goes so rich prays and here's Rich's prayer. Oh, God, those doors that have been slammed shut, please open them. <laughs> Rich. You know, and that's basically how a lot of us live, all right? And the reason why we have to ask the Holy Spirit to slam the doors, because for a lot of us, and I'll put myself in this group, if the door is open like that much, what do we say? Oh, I can put my foot in that. Oh, I, oh yeah, absolutely. God's given me the ability. I have to use my ability. I can push that door open. See, that's why you really have to ask God to slam the door in your face. <coughs> slam it in your face. And I'm sure that's what happened here. I'm sure Paul said, oh, I want to go into Asia. This is fantastic. I want to go into Asia Minor. And God said, no, I don't know how God said it, but he said it. Whatever it was, it was very clear, you're not going into Asia. Uh, instead, you're going to go to Europe. You're going to go to northern Greece. The gospel of Jesus Christ is now, for the first time, going to be presented into Europe by these missionaries. And so, uh, let's continue on. So it says here that when, uh, verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. 
And notice the spirit of Jesus. Encircle the spirit of Jesus. Because what you see here now is, now you are getting to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are, there are people that say, well, Brother John, I don't ever see the word Trinity spelled out in the Bible. And you will not see the word Trinity spelled out. But you will see Jesus praying to the Father. And then you will see Jesus saying, when I go, I'm going, I'm going to send another, a comforter. So there are three specific essences. And here, it's interesting, for the first time, they refer here to this Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. Fascinating. So here you see the Holy Spirit actually being given a defining personage uh, and speaking specifically. The Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go in that direction. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. But during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, and that's northern Greece, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, how does God speak to us? Are you going to actually hear God talking to your ear? Probably not, okay? I'm not going to say no one has ever heard God speak to them in an audible voice. I believe some people have, okay? But mostly, for most of us, God is going to speak to us in dreams. He's going to speak to us in impressions. He's going to speak to us in feelings. He's going to speak to us when we pray. There are all these different ways that God will speak to him. And you have to be trained to understand his voice. And that's through daily sanctification and daily prayer, getting into the Bible, getting into the Word. As you read this, you will understand and be able to understand God's voice. And here God clearly spoke to Paul through a vision. And he saw this vision of a man in Macedonia asking for him. And so he went over there and went to Macedonia. So in verse 11, from Troas we put out to sea, sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. So Philippi was effectively the capital city of Macedonia, which was northern Greece. Philippi is now a Roman colony. When it says a Roman colony, that's as good as being on, in, on the soil of Rome. What happened in those cases was that the emperor would talk mostly, speak to mostly retired military people and, say, and offer them the chance to colonize uh, a territory as a Roman territory. And the pitch would be this. If you were asked to go and colonize a Roman territory, the emperor would say to you, if you go and do this, you will not have to pay any taxes. It's like Florida. <laughs> Trust me, I'm from New Jersey. It's like Florida. And so you have to understand this. It's important to understand what, what the Roman colony was because just about this same time, Rome had thrown all of the Jews out of Rome, okay? There was a strong feeling of anti-Semitism 
strong feeling of anti-Semitism. And at the same time, there was a law that if you were a Roman citizen, no one could come up and proselytize you about another religion. That was one of the laws of Rome. So the laws of Rome were equally enforceable in the colonies. There's a strong feeling of anti-Semitism. And now our Jewish band of brothers is walking down there uh, to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and to teach these Gentiles about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not going to be a pleasant landing. And we're going to see why. But I wanted to give you the background about that. And so... Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And uh, you uh, underlined a place of prayer. They did not go to a synagogue because there was none. In order to have a synagogue, you had to have 12 adult Jewish men. That's how you had a synagogue. There were not, apparently, 12 adult Jewish men who felt convicted enough in Philippi to have a synagogue. That's where they normally went. So they go out of town to a place of prayer. I guess it must have been by maybe by the water or out in a field. Uh, and whatever it was under the unction of the Holy Spirit, they knew that there would be people there who were godly people who would be praying. And so it says where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now this is important because you wouldn't see Jews generally speaking to women. You remember when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well and the disciples were like affronted? He's speaking to a woman. Under Jew in Jewish tradition, women were not in any way treated as equals with men. It was horrible. And you see the difference now under the, the new covenant, how now there's an equality. God looks out. And in God's eyes, men and women are equal in the spirit. Let me tell you something. Men, God looks out and he sees equality between men and women. He may have given them different roles, but let me tell you something. Spiritually, God looks at them. He sees the same. Whereas under the Jewish law, that wasn't the way it was. And so you see an important differential already coming about even culturally. And so it says, we, be, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, and Thyatira is in Turkey, who was a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God, when, that's, when that is used to a Gentile, which she was, that means she was not a Jewish convert. She was a Gentile who worshipped Yahweh. All right? She worshipped Yahweh. She was not a Christian. She was not a Jew, but she understood the sovereignty of God as the creator. And so, continuing on, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Paul didn't open her heart. Silas didn't open her heart. You don't open anybody's heart. You deliver the message, but the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and members of her household were baptized. And let me stop at that point, because this becomes one of those issues again of household salvation. We saw it when it, we dealt with Cornelius. When he brought Peter into his house, the entire household got saved. 
the entire household. The Holy Spirit came down and sealed the entire household. All right? Here, her entire household got saved. And this is a wealthy woman. This is a businesswoman. This is an intelligent woman. I'm sure she has many servants in this house. All right? When she's selling purple. This was, a, this was something bought by aristocrats. Purple was a very expensive cloth. And so what this means is that they gave the gospel to Lydia. Lydia, I'm sure, was a leader in her house. But the fact that I accept Jesus doesn't mean that my son, who lives in the same house, is going to be a Christian. We understand this? This is a one-on-one -on -one decision. You are traveling as a Christian on your own passport. I know you came from godly parents. Some of you came from godly grandparents and great-grandparents. Some of you have great spiritual legacies that come out of you, that you come out of. But brother and sister, you are traveling on your own passport. I don't care how good your parents were. God bless you. You know what? You, you, have, a more respons you have more responsibility than somebody else. That's somebody that came out of a disparate home situation. God gave you a good home. You're on your own passport. Have you made your own personal commitment? Have you spoken to God yourself? Just like your children. Have they spoken? And so here what happens is Lydia and her entire household, one-on-one, -on -one, each got saved. And how do you know somebody is saved? You know, how do you know? Here's how you know. You see immediately that their life demonstrates a, a different way of acting. She invites him to, to stay at her house. But it isn't this kind of an invitation, which I've given to some people. When you come to Naples, I'm in the phone book. Look me up, and we'll get together. Well, that's an invitation. But how about this invitation she gives to Paul? If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. Oh, how can you turn down a woman who has just heard the gospel from you and her family who said, if you, believe, if you consider me a believer, I have to go to your house, don't I? That's a real invitation. That's a Christian, a Christian really inviting someone to stay at their home, if you consider me a believer. Uh, it's, just, it's just unbelievably powerful. By the way, and I'm just giving you this so that, again, theologically we're consistent here as we go through this. Make a note in your margin. You notice that you don't see any discussion of speaking in tongues. Okay? And I'm going to bring it up every time we come to one where there are tongues spoken. Because I will demonstrate to you that every time the book of Acts speaks about tongues, there will be a specific reason why there is a manifestation of tongues. It will be an evangelistic exercise for some purpose other than those two people involved. There will be some purpose and you will see it. And I will show that to you. You see here, her entire house, her entire house has accepted the Lord. There's no discussion of tongues. Did they receive the Holy Spirit? Yes. Okay? If you accept, if you accept me as a, if you believe that I'm a believer, come to my house. I'm at your house. Okay? The Holy Spirit was there. They received the Holy Spirit. Now, the difference, why in Cornelius' house did the Holy Spirit come down and manifest itself in tongues? Well, folks, that was for Brother Peter. That was for Brother Peter and the three or four Jewish witnesses he brought with him who needed to see 
that Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. Just merely saying people, I believe, wouldn't have been enough for those Jews that came out of that early church. They needed to see the demonstration that, in fact, God treated Gentiles just as he treated the Jews. And that's why, in that particular instance, you see that. And we'll go over this from time to time as we, as we carve out these, these exceptions. And so verse uh, 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, we've gone over this issue in other instances. You see time and time again the spirit of divination, the spirit of fortune-telling, the dark arts, the occultic arts, how they are related to demons. Make no mistake about this. This is biblical. This isn't me. This isn't me being, you know, some right-wing radical nut. The Bible tells you, the Bible tells you, and going back to the Old Testament, that God made it very clear, even in Old Testament times, that these occultic arts were forbidden. And how was she able to tell the future? Well, how do you think she told the future, folks? She's amazingly accurate. She's so accurate, people pay to hear it. Why? Because there's a demon telling her what's going on. There's a demon that knows things about your life that nobody else knows because it's in the spirit world. And let me tell you, don't fool around with things that God tells you are out of your province. Do not. Don't think merely because you're a Christian, oh, I can go waltzing in and fool around with these issues. I'm going to warn you. You are playing with fire. This is a very, very serious issue. And so she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Brother John, what is this about? A demonic spirit saying... These men are the servants of the Most High God. Do demons know God? Yes. Yes. Let me assure you. Demons know God. They don't worship God. They are in opposition to God. All right. They have placed themselves in rebellion to God, but they know about God. And so here, they, here you have this demon-possessed woman saying, these are the servants of the Most High God. And as you read this, as you read this, this, was, this kept up for many days. So as they were walking around, this was being enunciated. Now, there are a couple of different things, ways to look at this. The first way is that God could use evil for good. So this was a woman who was apparently had wide notoriety. God is allowing the words out of her mouth to spread about who, who uh, Paul and Silas are. But after a while, Paul and Silas recognized you cannot put the gospel of Jesus Christ in league with Satan. Doesn't matter whether or not what, what they're saying is tentatively correct. We are in a, we are in a completely different realm. And so Paul, in fact, somebody said it to me this morning, which made a point. This was even more of an ego trip. You can imagine if you're, 
if you're down there in the strange territory and this woman is saying, these are the servants of the Most High God. Oh, my head. She's right. Even she knows how great we are. You could see, right? You could see the danger in this. Oh, even she. Look, even she knows how important I am. My mission is so important. She knows. But you see, he understood. He understood the danger. And so, <laughs> typical Paul, finally he became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. I mean, my gosh, can you imagine the power, the power of the Holy Spirit at that period of time in the early church? We're going to end the lesson at this point and continue right where we are for next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh, we're so grateful, Lord, that you have preserved these people and protected them and brought them here, Lord. I ask that the words that you've given us today be multiplied in our heart, that we reflect on them during this coming week, Lord. Now, I ask you that you be with these people and protect them on their way home and bring them back safely next Sunday to continue our study of the word. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.